the lower below, the higher you go. Our text this morning is Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon us this morning. We pray that your spirit would come and that you would reveal your word to us and we might understand it and that we might be doers of it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. My favorite throw in judo is the Iponseoinage. It's a one-armed shoulder throw. And the secret to the throw is to get low, really low, below your opponent's belt line. It took me years with my old knees to get down low so that you're using body mechanics and technique instead of raw strength. In a similar way, the open secret of the Christian faith is to get low, really low, below those around you and even below yourself because we always want to lift ourselves higher. This morning in Luke, we'll see that we are to get low. Go ahead and open up your Bibles. Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Luke 14, beginning in verse 1. And it says there in Luke 14, 1, One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. Now, it's a Sabbath day. Have you ever wondered what the Sabbath was about? How was the Sabbath supposed to be executed? I think it's rather surprising what the Word of God actually says about the Sabbath. Is the Sabbath a day when we're to sit around and look at each other with morose looks on our face? Or do we to be sad and serious on the Sabbath day? How do they do it in the Old Testament? And notice on this Sabbath day, there's tension in the room and everybody is watching Jesus. Well, if you look at Leviticus chapter 23, you'll see these words beginning in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, these are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. God lays out here in Leviticus chapter 23, the feast system of Israel. He lays out feasts that you're probably familiar with, like the Passover or the Feast of First Fruits, when Israel gathered together in Jerusalem and celebrated with food and drink and worship. But the interesting thing is this. So here in Leviticus chapter 23, the Lord speaks to Moses and says, these are my appointed feasts. And the first thing that comes up in verse 3 is this. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath, a solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. So the first and foremost of the feasts of Israel is the Sabbath day. Think about the implications for us. The Sabbath was a feast day on which the Jews celebrated extravagantly with food, drink, and dance. And you can see an echo of that even today with Orthodox Jewish communities. The Lord's Day, likewise, should be a day of feasting and celebrating. It should be a day for us to gather in joyful assembly and share food and drink together. But notice what's happening on this Sabbath day in our text. The guests likely highly ranking Pharisees, are watching Jesus carefully. They have ill designs. By this point in time in his ministry, the Pharisees and the scribes and the lawyers are constantly watching Jesus, looking for an opportunity to trip him up, even to have him killed, going on to verse 2 of Luke 14. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Jesus, Jesus would have likely been seated at the seat of honor right next to the host. 
people were admitted to such a feast, not by accident. And notice, there's a man that suddenly appears here in the Greek. It literally says, behold, before. Suddenly, there's a man before Jesus, and he has dropsy. Now, dropsy is an old word. Maybe you don't know what it means. It's edema. Okay, normally it's related to your heart. Your circulatory system isn't working properly. And so fluid builds up in various parts of your body, particularly in your extremities, your legs in particular. Now today, if someone has dropsy, you might see them, their legs swell up. Oftentimes it happens with old people or people that have diabetic conditions and their legs swell up painfully, but we have things we can do about that. We can prolong them in their lives by draining the fluid out, but in the first century, you couldn't do that. And here we got this man here. Likely his limbs are all swelled up, and by the way, you die from edema. And in the first century, this would have been a death sentence. This man appears before Jesus with dropsy. He's got swollen limbs. He's in pain. The man would have had a swollen, bloated body. And here's the point of this. In the first century, a person who looked like this would have shown visibly on their body in the view of first century Judaism, here is a man who is cursed. Sin led to this condition. In addition to this, he's unclean. He's unfit to come into a feast and to celebrate with the people of God. Now, I want to suggest this is probably a trap. This poor suffering man in munch pain is just simply a tool utilized by the Pharisees to try to trip Jesus up. What's Jesus going to do with this man? Remember, Jesus has already been healing on the Sabbath. He's already castigated the leaders of Israel for being so cruel and uncaring about people that they wanted to argue with Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. Verse 3 of Luke 14. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees. Notice this. He responded to them on the man appearing before him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took them, him and healed him and sent him away. Lawyers and Pharisees are all intently watching Jesus. If he can't heal the man, then they're going to pounce on him. If he heals the man on the Sabbath, they're going to pounce on him as well. Either way, it's a trap, but Jesus calls them out. Jesus calls them out. The suffering man is standing before them. Can you see him? He's probably embarrassed of his situation. His eyes are down. He's in an awkward position. His body is racked with pain. It's swollen and bloated up. And Jesus says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Is it? There's silence. They don't say a word. Jesus likely laid hands on the man spoke over him, and it was so. And then he sent him away. And notice, he sent him away, and the man went away somewhere. He wasn't a guest. He was just a pawn in the circumstance. Now imagine this scenario for a minute. It's the Sabbath day. It's the holy day when the people of God gather together, and they hear the word preached, and they hear the word taught, and they sing the Psalms, and then they feast and this man is healed on the Sabbath day, and yet the only thing the scribes and Pharisees can do is try to trap Jesus. And in silence, they watch this man who's been miraculously healed. What a wonderful event. He goes off. He goes off. He's not a guest. Going on to verse 5. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, 
will not immediately pull him out. And they could not reply to these things. To buttress his case, Jesus asked them an unanswerable question. Why is it unanswerable? Because their theology blocks the way. The teachings of the rabbis block the way. Their assumptions on things, including who Messiah is and what Messiah can do, are blocking the way for them to see this wonderful event. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath and the ultimate man of grace and mercy. Now think about this for a minute. Jesus is God in the flesh. He's the second person of the triune God who has the only begotten Son of God, who in the very beginning was with God, always was who were told in John chapter 1, spoke the heavens into existence, spoke and it was, who was the one who moved upon people by the power of the Spirit. He was God who brought forth the word of God way back in the law concerning the case of the Sabbath and what was done on the Sabbath. Cannot the Lord of the Sabbath teach us what can be done on the Sabbath? And here the Lord of the Sabbath heals this man this man who was not able to be healed by the leaders of Israel, this man who was treated like dirt and went out from this feast, though he should have been an honored guest at this point in time. Verse 7, now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. Jesus, having just slipped out of the Pharisaic trap, noticed how proud they were. These men, who should have been caring for God's flock, instead used them to care for themselves. Now, the ironic thing about this is even though this is in a Jewish context, and Pharisaic Jews in the first century could not stand Gentiles. There's a lot of good reasons for that. The Gentiles are in their land occupying it. They're hated overlords. But if you look at how this, this table meal is, is set out, it kind of reminds you of Greco-Roman culture. It kind of mirrors it. Now, I don't know if they're trying to do this intentionally or it's just human nature and our sin, but the way things would have been done in the Roman world at this time is you would have had a patra familia. You would have had a very influential man and he would set up his feast and you would have his most influential right-hand man. That's where we get that term from. He's on the right-hand side. And then the next most influential person's on the left and the more influential, so on and so forth, down the right and left. And maybe you got these less, less influential people sitting out here in a crowd and you might even have another crowd in an anteroom outside. And all the good food and drink goes first to the most influential people. And the seats of honor go to these people who are influential in a pagan culture, and yet we see Israel's leaders acting exactly like this. And a man in need of grace and mercy, this man with dropsy, is treated like a stranger. This is how they view the arrival of the kingdom of God. They assume that they're the honored ones. They assume they know what Messiah must look like and what Messiah must do. And by this point in time, they've made up their mind. Jesus is a, a Messiah. He's a heretic misleading the people. But the host in our parable here at the feast kicks the presumptuous ones down to the lowest place. Going on to verse 10. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, 
he may say to you, friend, move up higher, and then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Notice that the invitation is given and accepted, and the person accepts the lowest place here. Why? What do we mean by the lowest place here? It means they are low. It means they are humble. They don't make assumptions about who they are and what their place should be at this wedding feast. But the host moves the low one higher to a place of honor. Why? Because with the coming of Jesus, he's setting things right. He's causing things to occur and speaking words on how things should be. He's demonstrating how things should be. He's restoring how things should be. And God is making the high low and the low high. Jesus demonstrates this with his own life. When Jesus says, get low, Jesus got low. Jesus got real low, all the way from heaven to the cross. The eternal second person of the Godhead, the Son of God, who sat in glory upon his throne, reigning and ruling over the cosmos, came down and took on human flesh to rescue us. He got low. He was humiliated on our behalf. He did what Adam should have done but didn't and plunged all of us He took our sins upon himself. He got low all the way to the cross, but he also rose on the third day. The Pharisees need to get low. Friends, you and I always need to get low. We need to get lower. Our tendency is always to puff ourselves up. We need to remind ourselves of who we are, recipients of the gift of grace and all we have. As immense as our material possessions might be, they're all a gift from God. Going on to verse 12. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or brothers or relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. Friends, we have seen that the Lord's day is a day of feasting. If the Sabbath was a day of feasting and the The Lord's day, move forward with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, is not identical with the Sabbath, but surely we can draw principles from that. What the Sabbath was is fulfilled in the Lord's day, and if it was a day of feasting, then the Lord's day is a day of feasting. And we shouldn't just invite friends and relatives to the feast. In fact, if you want a a good echo of this in the Old Testament, it's the story of David and Mephibosheth. David, who's persecuted by King Saul, King Saul, who wickedly goes after David and shamefully ends his life with suicide at the end. His entire family's wiped out, and when David comes and is set upon the throne in Jerusalem, he looks around and says, can I have mercy on someone? Is there anyone left in Saul's family? And there is one, Mephibosheth. His name means from the mouth of shame. He's the last of the children of Saul. He's a cursed son from a cursed father. In addition to that, he's crippled. And what does David do, the shepherd king, forecasting the Lord Jesus Christ? He blesses him, he restores the land to Mephibosheth, and he has Mephibosheth sit at his table and feast with the king. He's forecasting what Jesus is gonna do with a bunch of schlubs like us. Now, if you wanna know how to do this, on a practical way, what I do, 
And I'd encourage you to do this. As we go forward, if you don't know how, we're going to teach you how to do hospitality at the church here. So don't just look out of the church and go, hey, there's people I like hanging out with. Or, hey, that guy likes to fish. I like to fish. I'll have them over all the time. That guy likes to shoot. I like to shoot. That guy likes to play video games. No, you, you look out. You try to invite everybody. What I do, I got a spreadsheet of the whole church, and I go through that spreadsheet, and I go down, and I try to make sure that I have everybody in the church over for lunch one time at least during the year. I can spare, uh, also share that spreadsheet with you if you're interested. So don't invite those to the feast who are high up and can repay, but get low. Verse 13, but when you have a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Friends, ultimately the feast is the body of Christ, which is feasting through this age into the next. Jesus is the host, and he lives to invite people to his feast, particularly the low. Jesus has paid the costly price for the feast, so don't neglect it, and don't neglect to invite others to the feast. We are all unworthy recipients of the feast and therefore should become generous hosts. This table that we eat is a mere token of what's coming. We get a little piece of bread, we get a little cup of wine, and it's looking forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. But furthermore, more than this, this should launch us out into a week of hospitality. This should launch us out into feasting with one another. And indeed, the body of Christ is marching through history. It's marching through history like an army, conquering, expanding the kingdom of God. It's also marching through history as a movable feast. So get low and invite the low to the feast, the church, the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, the socially awkward, the young singles, the elderly, the lonely, lost in sin. Howard started his life down low. Born into a working-class Jewish family, Howard grew up in the projects in Brooklyn, New York. But Howard went to college on a football scholarship, got his bachelor's degree, and became a salesman with a coffee maker distributor company. While he was on a sales call to a small chain of coffee houses, he became impressed with their operation. And expressing a tenacious interest in the company, he was invited up high by the owners to buy them out for what is now a ridiculously small price. Howard doggedly built the small chain into the world's most recognized chain of coffee houses, Starbucks. And Howard Schultz is one of the most successful billionaires in the world. He started low and ended up high. Christians are to start low and end up high. But rather than being tenacious businessmen, we are to be lowly servants of others. And being humble, God will raise us up in his own timing, now and absolutely for all Christians on the last day, when the people of God will reign and rule over the cosmos forever and ever. Can I hear an amen to that? Amen. This morning we've seen in the Gospel of Luke that the people of God are to get low. Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, bless us. Bless us in your son who got low. We pray that you would help us to get low. For that's where we are to be, that you might lift us up, that we might have a proper perspective on who we are in your kingdom. Bless us to spread the feast through this age in our time and place. 
For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.